So good morning, everyone. I'm Kim Leary here at our podcast, Agility at Work, One Step Ahead. And I'm with my co-host, Professor Mike Wheeler. Oh, Professor today. Well, okay. Well, I can say Professor back to you in that (laughs) case, Kim. We're partners in crime such as it uh, is. And it's it's interesting. Um, You know, here we are set up at the Harvard Business School, but uh, you're the Kennedy School, and the guest who will be coming in today is Hannah Riley Bowles, who is your colleague over there. Well, Hannah is actually the chair of the management, leadership, and decision sciences area at the Kennedy School. So I'm very pleased to to be teaching over there uh, in her area this year. I'm kind of curious. What is not management, leadership, and decision-making, if that was the the third thing, that uh, maybe being a poet, perhaps, (laughs) uh, in that case. But I've known Hannah for a long time. She got her doctorate here at the Harvard Business School, and I've done some teaching with her and so forth. So uh, we should invite her in. Hey, Hannah. Great to see you once uh, again. And you walked across from the Kennedy School, I assume, over the Charles on the Bridge. When we set this up, we had no idea what the weather would be, but just a fabulous day today. And glad not only you could make it, but you could make it and you didn't get rained on or snowed on. Thank you. Always great to spend some time with you. And you see more of Kim because um, Kim is teaching presently at the Kennedy School as well, in addition to her other appointments, and teaches authority. She's taught teams and adaptive leadership as well. But our focus. We're very lucky for that, that we have her. <laughs> Hannah, you and I go way back to when you were a doctoral student here at the Harvard Business School. And I remember some personal things. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Kim, but we used to play a nasty game of Scrabble with no board. I remember that. (laughs) And it was one of those things where every tile would be upside down and tiles would be flipped and where you could make a three-letter word, you'd grab those letters. But if somebody else, when the next tile was flipped, could turn that into four-letter, they'd grab it. Those were the rules, but there was a lot of trash talk as we were as we were doing that. Remind me, though, when you weren't doing that, you also were writing your thesis. What was your thesis? <laughs> what was your thesis topic? I think I was so distracted by all those games, it took me a little while to land there on my thesis topic. But I ended up writing about gender and negotiation. And um, you know, Kim, you've actually taught negotiation as well, and this is. Um, not far removed from your field in terms of leadership, and we'll get into how there's an overlap in that. Was your thesis actually based on that Salt Harbor negotiation that I created, or was it based on other things? You know, I don't know. I don't remember if that particular study ever ended up in my dissertation. We ran a number of studies, and Mm -hmm. I laugh reflecting back that I actually came kind of gradually to that topic of focusing on gender and negotiation. And I think if you had asked me at the beginning of my doctoral programs whether I would have wanted to write about gender and negotiation, I think I would have cocked my eyebrow at you and walked away maybe even because <laughs> I wasn't at all convinced that um, that was important uh, to negotiation practice or something that we should be paying any attention to in the classroom. In fact, I was pretty resistant to that idea starting out. And then we started doing some analyses of the data from the MBA classrooms, and the results were surprising to me. And so one of those early 
studies that we did was of this Salt Harbor data, and that was one of the ones that kind of hooked me into the topic. Can can you can we back up just a little bit when you talk about the resistance you felt at first? Uh, why did you have some reluctance to get into gender issues? The early ideas about gender and negotiation came from a conception of gender as a kind of personality variable. So we imagined that female negotiators would be cooperative and relational and that male negotiators would be competitive and those sound, were, those sound a bit like stereotypes. Yeah, those are definitely <laughs> the stereotypes. And now the stereotypes have lasted. What didn't hold up was our tests of those stereotypes. But early on, before we had really good tests of those stereotypes, I think there was a fear among women who identified with negotiation to buy into any of that because I hated the idea that someone was going to look at me and think, oh, her strength is going to be that she's relational, but, you know, that's good for me. She's going to give up a lot, but I'll, you know, send her into situations where stuff needs to get patched over or something like that. This whole idea that you could categorize your uh, negotiation. I, I was deep into these. I was, you know, the student of Howard Rafa mm-hmm. and Roger Fisher and you and we, we were, I was part of a junior member of that whole crowd. We were in Mike you know, really excited about negotiation analytics and strategy. And I just wanted to be part of that crowd. I didn't want to be marginalized as the kind of relationship persons there as a result of my gender. So I was really resistant to anything related to gender because I didn't want the stereotype attached to me or to all women. So, so Kim, we've referred to this negotiation exercise. But for our listeners, I want to see if I can pass the test here. It's a simple price-driven negotiation where you've got a buyer and a seller. And in the instructions, and there are confidential instructions for each role, the buyer is asked, you know, what's a great price? What would be a terrific outcome here? What would be okay? And what is the very most you would pay, your upper limit? And correspondingly, the people who are the sellers, you know, what would be a terrific price for you to get? What would be a pretty good one? And what is the very least you would Accept. Have I been reasonably clear here? Can you give me a thumbs up? Or yeah, I, I think I get the scenario. So, so we had set this up, required negotiation course at the time at Harvard Business School, 900 students. Take it from there, Hannah. What did you do with, with the fact that we were going to have people do this negotiation, 450 negotiations when you pair people up? Okay, so, so – so you've got you got all these negotiators, and it's a fairly competitive negotiation. And I want to go back to these stereotypes. You can imagine um, that you could think that those stereotypes or predict that those stereotypes would tell you what the differential outcomes of the negotiations would be. And if it's a competitive bargaining situation, if the women are cooperators and the men are competitors, you know, the then the men will do better than the women because they'll grab a larger share of the pie, right? And the early gender studies would do things like that. They would, uh, they would try to predict people's behavior based on their gender. What we were looking at in this study was not only whether your gender might predict your performance, but whether your gender might predict your counterpart's expectations mm. about how they would do in the negotiation. Okay. So what we did in this, in this study uh, was to – make sure that everybody knew with whom they had been assigned to negotiate uh, 
before they went in, and they filled in a pre-negotiation form, which is standard if you do training very often. You write, what are your aspirations? What's your walkaway value? And, you know, what's your first offer going to be? Something like that, So right? you can really uh, get a good bead on the expectations that people have going into the negotiation. Yes, and we've, and we've trained them that they should go in with a solid set of expectations. The most important finding coming out of this study was, I don't even remember actually how, I think we got inconsistent gender differences in outcomes, but the clear result that we got was that if um, the students were paired with a woman, they went in thinking that they were going to, they set higher aspiration prices. So if they were on sales, you know, they set a higher price. They were intending to ask for more because they had a higher aspiration. But the other thing was that they actually planned to walk away from the negotiation at a higher price than if they were paired with a guy. And I remember so they're, they're, it was they're... the walkaway value that bothered you the most. Yes. Michael. Well, we'll get into that. But I want to be sure people understand this is all in people's head before they sit down. They even see the other person. They've done this preparation. And if I recall correctly – you not only told them the name of the person that they had to negotiate, but they had to write it down. Is that correct? Yeah, they had to write it on the form. So we knew before they recorded their data that they had a sense of the uh, that they were they aware were of that. Yeah, and there might be something even about the physical act of writing it that somehow internalizes it. I'm speaking completely without any kind of knowledge, as I often do <laughs> on this. But but I want to reiterate, Kim. So this meant that if a seller facing a male counterpart said, my goal is to sell this for $200,000. If they were paired with a woman, it would be for two twenty-five. And then, as you say, Hannah, the nutty part about it is those same people would say, I'd accept 110 if it's a man. This is all implicit, but I need 120 from a woman. Yeah. You know, um, and that's, so, uh, that's what you found, with variation, right? But those are, yeah. those are statistically significant results. Yeah, statistically significant on average, of course, on average. So it's not every person is doing this, but on average. And you're right. I mean, so you might imagine with the aspirations piece that it's just, well, I think I'm going to do better in this negotiation as a result of the fact that – I mean, they might have thought as a result of the fact that she's a woman, she's a less good negotiator. I, my gut instinct is that wasn't what they were thinking. These study results caused a lot of introspection on my part, and I had run through a lot of these simulations when I was a student, and I wondered, oh, no, did I do this? Did I think to myself, oh, good, she'll be nice, she'll be agreeable, or if I got with a guy, I might have thought, oh, you know, I think he's going to be, you know, he's going to be a pain. You know, I'm not going to, this is going to be hard for me to, you know, get out of this with everything I want. So it makes, so the aspirations, you know, that you could see those, but the walkaway values, I do think it pointed to something deeper that this was kind of not rational. That yeah, I was going to say not, not conscious. Excuse yeah. me, it's nuts. Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's nuts, it's right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, if I'm paired with him, I'll take the 100 or 110. If I'm paired with you, it's got to be 120. That. That is, and you're the psychologist. I'm going to use a technical <laughs> term. That's nuts. Well, it really does show that there's this cost in negotiation if that is connected to gender. Isn't that right, Hannah? Yeah. Well, you can think about. It. I mean, there's certainly a cost. There, there's a there. Well, the biases create yes. um, create create 
uh, inefficiencies that produce, you know, loss of value. I mean, you can think about it that way. I mean, it's very definitely think about it that way. Certainly, if somebody walked away from the table and left value on the table by virtue of the fact that they can't imagine uh, paying that little to a woman or something like that. But again, I don't think that they were making that conscious of a calculus. Right. I really think it was probably in the for the most part, maybe some of <laughs> Mike's raising his eyebrows at me. I mean, maybe some of them it was conscious. I think for a lot of them, I, I really trust it wasn't an explicit thing. Because we were, remember, we were surprised by these results. Yes, yes. Um, I was thinking, if you're trying to do mind reading here, I was thinking that you did your thesis after the study in the 1990s, I think, that Ian Ayers did, Ian Ayers from Yale. Yeah. And this was a study where they actually sent people out, not in a mock negotiation, but in the field, to buy automobiles. That's right. And they, they did their best to find people who, although they might be different in terms of, of gender or race, presented in other ways more or less the same. And they found significantly that even though a woman might be able to, you know, do more than change the spark plugs and I can't find where the key goes in, in the car, the woman is going to get quoted a higher price on average than a man. And if you're black, it's compounded. So this is really in the field. Yeah. And so these disparities, if you will, that you see in the lab, they also are a part of people's working lives and the negotiations that they're doing with their starting salaries or the parameters of their job. And I know you have a rich portfolio of research on women in negotiation uh, it, as it actually pertains to starting salaries. Can you tell us a little about that? I mean, if you go back to that, uh, I'm going to draw a connection, though, from that, the early stuff that we did in the MBA classroom. Um, I was so shocked by those data in particular because I thought, these women are at Harvard Business School. Like, these are, you know, they're fierce. You know, they're fabulous. Like, how would I be finding gender effects here? And so that motivated me to think about, you know, under what circumstances would you find gender effects? And again, let me go back. The studies that tried to predict cooperators, women are cooperators, men will be competitors, they kind of failed. The results are all over the place. It's like our the way we live day to day. You know, sometimes, you know, men cooperate more than women. Sometimes women compete more than men. Men and women are not, you know, don't behave in those reliably stereotypic ways. But the stereotypes do persist. So one of the things that we tried to look at was what under what circumstances would you find gender differences in negotiation? Mm -hmm. um, one of them is, or the two, and I'll highlight two together, one is masculine stereotypic negotiating context because there's going to be this assumption that this is kind of a guy's realm, right? And... Secondly, when there's some degree of ambiguity uh, with regard to what defines the zone of possible agreement, and also I would argue over time we've realized also what are our bargaining expectations. Going back to that real estate sale negotiation, this right. sort of competitive bargaining setup, and some of the other ones that we had in the MBA classroom were really heavily masculine stereotyped, and it wasn't clear what exactly the right answer was in terms of what was a good deal. 
And when there's a certain degree of ambiguity in a context, and then we found also when it's particularly masculine stereotyped, which reinforces this idea, masculine stereotyped and competitive, this sort of reinforces this idea that the guys are going to do better, that gender started being predictive of the outcomes. What we discovered moving from there was that if you gave men and women the same good information about um, what they should be looking for in terms of an outcome, those gender effects went away completely. So it, it's the ambiguity? That... So it's the ambiguity. Ambiguity and then combined with this masculine stereotypic context. Now, how I'm leading to that with salary negotiations is pay is highly masculine stereotyped. We've got the male breadwinner model, which is this kind of idea that persists even though family structures are evolving. Men tend to be associated with higher paying jobs, not entirely wrongly, because on average they do tend to dominate those types of positions. And so you have a pay negotiation as an example where you're competitively making claim to a masculine stereotypic resource, and there typically is a fair amount of ambiguity about um, what it's appropriate exactly to ask for, and then you know whether it's appropriate to negotiate and how. Connecting, like with the AIR study, to some actual real-life data, one of the this other is things— This the Ian e AIR study from the, Yale, yes. The Ian e AIR studies right. with the car bargaining. You know, we also looked at the outcomes of, you know, MBA's uh, compensation negotiations or their potential to negotiate their compensation. At the start of their careers. At the start of their careers. Coming out of the MBA program, you're going out, you're looking for a job. And so based on these lab results, we thought, okay, in those industries where the MBAs are looking for— jobs where it's pretty clear like what the standards are, the norms are, you've got good information. We're going to predict there's going to be very little gender difference once you control for occupation and years of experience and previous salary and a whole variety of other things, right? But in those occupations where there's a fair amount of ambiguity, and at that point, a lot of it was the kind of the internet, tech, startup, some of these other uh, spaces where not a lot of MBAs went. And career services folks told us, and they're actually the MBAs when they're graduating, they don't really have a good sense of what they can get for salary in these areas, in these industries, as compared to these other ones. What we found was that, again, if you have a clear sense of what you should be asking for, no gender differences once you control for all these other factors. However, in those industries where it was ambiguous, we found about a $10,000 gender difference wow. in starting salaries for and male and female And that compounds over time. That could compound over time. Even controlling for all of those factors like function and years of experience and previous um, things, a whole variety of things, even dual career concerns. I mean, we had a whole lot of controls, and we still found this break in the ambiguous Do you have conditions. any good news? Yes, I have a lot of good news. Uh, that's really important. I want to tell you one good news story for my dissertation, and then another piece of good news is that there are strategies for getting around this. And in fact, if it's okay to plug it, I've got a, an sure. a, a hbr.org um, Harvard Business Review. HarvardBusinessReview.org little paper that you can look up. Why don't women negotiate their job offers? Which has got some, it's got a longer explanation of this research and then some advice in it. But going to good news, one piece on the good news, which I think reinforces this idea that gender differences are in negotiation are about stereotypes as opposed to performance is that one of the things we looked at is whether you're negotiating for yourself or whether you're negotiating for somebody else. And what we found is we ran salary negotiation scenarios, and we had people either advocating for themselves for higher pay or advocating for others. And what we found was that women negotiating on behalf of others for higher pay 
did as well, if not better, than the men in that same type of role. But where we found the gap was in the self-advocacy space, where you had to ask for more pay for yourself. Now, where we figured out what was going on there, it wasn't just that this idea that people think men and women, men are better negotiators than women. We also think it's more attractive and socially appropriate for women to put others before themselves. So there are stereotypes that make assumptions that men are better negotiators than women in a kind of descriptive sense. But there are also stereotypes that are about what we think is attractive behavior in men and women. And what we realized that what was going on with the pay negotiations was that it wasn't just that people thought men were going to do better in this competitive bargaining context. That part of the story was that we actually find it more socially attractive in men to ask for higher pay than we do in women. When women are asking for higher pay for others, that's great. Look at them. They're being fierce advocates for others. We like it when women put others before themselves. So there's a social cost to women if they're advocating for themselves in some of these contexts. Well, so what we found in multiple studies was evidence that if you saw the same candidate who didn't negotiate, say a professional actor, who in another condition does negotiate, the people who saw her negotiate are less inclined to work with her than the people who saw that same woman in the interview but then let the negotiation pass. Now, men can overdo it too, where we found results in studies where there's a social cost to that bargaining, where because the guy negotiated too hard, people don't think they're going to enjoy or benefit from working from him as much. But across numerous studies, not only that we ran, but also that others ran, this social cost that you're referring to, Kim, was higher for women than for men. So I think this is actually, I want to go back to these stereotypic ideas about men and women as bargainers. There's a lot of discussion that women don't negotiate their pay. But the best evidence is that the reason why is because they're accurately reading the social environment. Yes. This is a trickier thing for them to pull off than it is for a guy. So you mentioned there was some good news and some strategies that uh, you would would put forth, say, to your students. Yeah. So the two things that I would remember going in, we going into a, a pay negotiation, one is that you want to make clear why what you're asking for is legitimate. Mm-hmm. And secondly, that you are taking the other side's perspective. Now, Mike, this is the same thing we've been teaching people to do for years. The, sep- the difference here is that we've actually run this in a lot of studies and shown that this not only helps women get what they want from the negotiation, but also make the impression that they want to make. Let me give you one anecdote uh, along these lines. Um, one female executive told me the story of finding out that a male subordinate of hers was being paid more than she was. And this was actually the second time this had happened. So you can imagine she's having a lot of thoughts and things that she might like to say to the company about this. I expect so. Yeah. (laughs) But what she ended up doing was going back to them and saying, "Um, I know you're going to want to change this. So that's the – this is totally legitimate that I'm asking you about this because this is inconsistent with company values and practices, Right. So I know that you're going to want to help me solve this problem, and I'm going to leave this to you. 
So again, it's kind of we're all on the same team. We're in this organization. And you're going to see as transparently as I do that this is a problem that needs to be fixed. So that gives uh, some uh, orientation to when you're facing one of these uh, scenarios, either in the lab or uh, as you're working uh, your way through an offer with uh, a company about how to think about the work at hand, that self-advocacy in the context of the values and needs of the company might better position you for negotiation. Yes, and I think also if you're feeling nervous about self-advocacy, it might not be about you. I mean, you might be accurately reading the social environment that this is a little tricky and you should get advice, um, the best advice you can about what is going to be most persuasive um, to your, you know, target of influence, that person you want to persuade, what's going to convince them that it's appropriate for you to be negotiating and that, you know, you're taking their perspective as well as your own when you're making the request. I know we're just about out of time, but I just want to uh, underscore one thing that I think you that you said that is so important, which is when women have opted not to negotiate in a given instance, it's a good read of the environment. At least that's something they should think about and recognize. Yeah, and not question themselves. Right. Well, thank you, Hannah, for a very exciting, provocative, and uh, helpful conversation. And let me echo that. Thanks so much for coming over. Always great talking to you guys. Thank you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.